Welcome to Detour to Neverland, where you are the author of your own Disney story. There's a lot of satisfaction in developing ideas into realities. And you can find magic in your everyday life. If you do what you really want to do, you feel like you're playing. How can you write your first chapter today? Dreams are how we figure out where we want to go. Life is how we get there. I'm headed this way. We're your hosts, Brendan and Catherine. Welcome back to Detour to Neverland. Today is episode number 277. We are continuing our attraction storytelling series today, talking about Test Track. This is a story about government bailouts, about abandoning ideas, about trying to fit something into the theme of a park that has an identity crisis. We're going to jump into all of that. Of course, our goal is always here to make sure that the next time that you ride Test Track, you have a more enjoyable experience and understand more of the story that's going on around you. But before we jump into all of that excitement, I do want to mention our travel agent sponsor, Hannah Little, with Creating Magic Vacations. If you are planning your next trip to Disney World or really anywhere else, you need to go to littlebitofdisney.com. There you can find a quick form that you can fill out. If you know what you want to do in your dates, go ahead and let her know. If you don't, that's okay too. Just give give her whatever you do know. She monitors all the latest discounts for Disney. She'll make sure that you get the best deal possible. She's easy to work with and she's going to help you plan a great trip. And the best part of all of this is that you don't have to pay for any of her services because Disney actually pays for it. So it's basically like having a travel assistant for free, which is ultimately going to make your life easier. She can help you grab those hard-to-get dining reservations like Oga's Cantina, and she's here to help you save you some time and make your life more stress-free. So again, you can find her at littlebitofdisney.com or click on the link in our show notes. So Test Track, we need to get our biases out of the way. Catherine loves this attraction. I'm a little more lukewarm on it. It's a good attraction, But I think for these, and especially this one that has such a complicated history and a complicated past and future, I think, we need to get our biases out of the way just a little bit. We're going to try to be as objective as possible, but you're probably going to put a more positive spin on some of these things while I will take a more negative spin. And that's just how this conversation is probably going to go. Do you think that's fair? I mean, it's probably fair. It disappoints me every single time to know that you're a known hater of this attraction. This is the great divide in our household for Epcot attractions, but it's something that we are constantly working through, so we'll be okay. <laughs> That's funny. It's a, it's a work in progress for us? It is. So let's get out some of the key facts for Test Track before we get started. It opened in Future World of Epcot officially on March 17th, 1999. They did roll it all the way back for a soft opening in December of 1998. Now, they had a lot of problems getting this open, right? Yes, we are going to talk about all of those problems. But it's funny to think about the concept for Test Track. um, And when they soft opened, you were literally being their test subject. They needed to run the ride and test it out because it had so many issues that they would only run it for a few hours a day at that time until it was ready to be opened completely in March. So I do find that amusing. So it was delayed around how many months? 
Almost two years. Almost two years. It was supposed to open in May of 1997 is when they originally scheduled for this thing to open. And again, there were just so many technical issues that they could not foresee since this was, I mean, this was an attraction unlike anything else that they had ever done. It was the fastest. It was the most technologically advanced and they ran into a lot of problems. So to understand how Test Track got to where it is today, I do think we need to look at Test Track's history and the history of this pavilion and to a certain extent, the history of Epcot itself. And so I want to start a kind of a thousand foot view and understand what is the story and the theme of Epcot in Future World and how are they working together? So in our research, I found this quote from Walt Disney Imagineering, and I don't know who exactly it was attributed to, but they said, Epcot is about discovery, the ideas and technologies that will take us into the future and the people who will make those things happen. Epcot convinces us that the future will be a great place to be and encourage us to make the trip there together. Now, this is probably the best description I've ever heard of Epcot. I... Due to our age, you and I did not experience Epcot at all in the 80s. And then in the 90s, we weren't really at a cognizant age to really feel Epcot in its heyday. So we have kind of picked up the scraps along the way. And we've heard from many of you about how wonderful of a park this was when it first opened. And it's had an identity crisis for so long. But I do think this description does something that is very important and it blends World Showcase and Future World better together than any other description I've ever heard. There's a couple of key phrases in there that mean a lot to me. I think discovery is a big part of it. I think discovery can be a blanket statement across all of Walt Disney World. But then if you go on, people who will make those things happen, those things being the changes for the future. And then at the very end, Make the trip there together. Again, referencing the future. So, I don't know. Has this been something you've ever thought about? About how Future World and World Showcase, how this common theme actually bringing them together is people more than anything. Yeah, I've never thought about it that way until just now, honestly. And and hearing this quote, I do think that that's, one of the biggest parts of World Showcase is highlighting people and cultures and then tying that back into technology and how everyone is working together. I think that's a really fun notion that is easily missed because typically people break apart Epcot into, you know, the front half and the back half and everyone has a favorite. Right now the front half is not there. So I'd say... World Showcase is the favorite at the moment. But it would be nice to be able to see that tie-in more easily. And it kind of makes sense if you look back in the history of that Future World and World Showcase both began as independent projects that Walt Disney Imagineering was working on. They were never meant to really work hand-in-hand together. But when this idea of Epcot came up and they were going to put this entirely new theme park together that was not based on intellectual property not based on the blueprint that they already had for Magic Kingdom Disneyland. This was just a completely new concept. And so they had these two independent projects working, and finally they saw the connection. And they said the key to the future 
is people working together. And so when you experience different cultures and you get a better appreciation for other cultures and other places around the world, that is how we build a better future. Now, there's probably some ironing out that they can continue to do to make that a more fluid theme. But I bring this up just because this is a common discussion point around Epcot of that. Have they abandoned the original idea? What are they doing? Where are they going with this? And a lot of it ties back to Walt's famous Epcot film that was uh, produced and, and put out to the world of him pitching this idea of Epcot. It was recorded in October of 1966, and it was just two months before his death. So obviously, for that reason, there is a lot of emotion tied to Epcot. This was kind of Walt's final thing that he worked on, his last grand big idea. And what he pitched and what we got is obviously very two completely different things. If you're not familiar with that, we're not going to dissect the entire Epcot film that he worked on. But one of the biggest parts of this experimental prototype community of tomorrow was he did want to have commercial and residential in there. But one of the biggest talking points was transportation. And I think that is so key to not miss that, that so much of what Walt was about and what he loved and what his passion was revolved around transportation. You can see that in his affinity for the railroads. You can see that as an affinity between him and Bob Gurr working on pushing the limits on ride vehicles for his attractions in the parks. And so I think that lays a really good foundation to understand that transportation is vital and has deep roots in Epcot's vision. I mean, I completely agree. I think when we're talking about Test Track today, that's something that we're always going to come back to. Because not only does it fit with what Walt loved, and it was a big part of this original plan for Epcot, but it also kind of starts the history of the space where Test Track now sits. So Test Track replaced the original attraction in this space, which was called World of Motion. And when I started my research for today's episode, I never planned on going down a rabbit hole for World of Motion. That's kind of where it took me to, and I kind of loved it. So we are going to talk a little bit about the history of the space before we talk about the actual test track. Because again, I do think the history, especially in this point, and with what you just mentioned, Brendan, I think it gives us a better appreciation for test track, even for those of us in the room who are known haters. I Haters, harsh. Dislikers. I just prefer Soren. And World of Motion, even though I never went on it. Well, to kick things off, World of Motion was the transportation-themed pavilion. It was part of the opening day in 1982, and it was there until 1996. And basically, they always knew that they were going to have a transportation-themed pavilion. It featured an Omnimover, and it looked at the history of transportation. And my first instinct was what? A snooze fest. I mean, honestly, the history of transportation, it sounded terrible. It actually was not. This attraction was primarily designed by Ward Kimball and Mark Davis, big Mark Davis fans here, and it was actually known 
for being funny. It had a lot of humor. There were different different gags throughout their attraction. And it was meant to kind of offset the straightforward narration of how transportation had evolved. So it was kind of like a spoof. Which is interesting because you can kind of see how this goes hand in hand with Spaceship Earth. You know, as you enter the park and you learn more about communication and how we've evolved, you know, as a human race, this is taking a a deeper dive into a subsector of that. Spaceship Earth doesn't have much humor, though. So I think it's interesting that this involved a lot of humor. And if you go back and watch the ride through of World of Motion, it wasn't even just the dialogue that was humorous. The animatronics were funny with their expressions and they had a sea monster in there that how would you fit that into a story of transportation? But Mark Davis basically found a way to weave all that in together. So from what we heard, it sounded like Mark Davis was basically attributed with most most of the humor and the scene setting. And then Ward Kimball did a lot of the art and kind of filling in the gaps along the way. Yeah, his background was that he was actually an animator, and this was the first and only attraction that he ever helped with. And he came out of retirement to do so. So he must have had a very specific skill set that they were looking for. And something also to mention, because we are talking about Mark Davis, there are a lot of similarities between this particular attraction and some of his other more famous attractions, things like Haunted Mansion in Pirates of the Caribbean, in the sense that, you know, Haunted Mansion was an Omnimover. It had some little gags and some quirks to it, which were also part of World of Motion. They had the um, the Peppers ghost. ghost part of World of Motion, which is super fun. And it's interesting to see just some of those similarities, you know, that Mark Davis truly did have a style. And he kind of had a blueprint that he went off of and favorite people to tap into bringing his ideas to life, one of those being Ex Atencio. So Ex Atencio wrote the music for Grim Grinning Ghosts. He also wrote Yoho, A Pirate's Life for Me. He also wrote a lot of the music used in World of Motion. Well, the music for World of Motion. So the World of Motion theme song was called Fun to be Free. We're going to talk about it here in a minute. But it had the same idea of both of those other attractions, Pirates and Haunted Mansion, where this song basically looped throughout the entire ride, but it changed just ever so slightly to fit the room that you were in. So depending on what time frame or what type of transportation you were learning about, the song changed just a little bit. But it was constantly moving, just like the Omnimover, and... I mean, that's so interesting. Again, it makes us wish that we could have wrote it ourselves. So we mentioned kind of before in Walt's story and his vision for Epcot about this deep tie-in with transportation. And just to further illustrate how World of Motion came to life, it really dates back to the 1964 New York World's Fair. So at this time, Disney partnered with Ford to do the Ford Magic Skyway, which is really an interesting ride concept They had all of these Ford convertibles that they took the engines out of, put them on a track. I think they had 50 of them, right? They had quite a few. And it was basically an omni-mover of Ford convertibles. They would take you in. They would show you 
They had dinosaur scenes. They had all kinds of stuff. Well, it makes me think of that scene that I was making fun of the other day on the railroad where you pass by all the dinosaurs. And I was like, how random. But that's kind of what the Ford Magic Skyway was. It just walked you through a bunch of animatronics in a Ford car. And people loved it. It was a hit. And so at this same New York World's Fair in 1964, General Motors had their own pavilion. And obviously the Ford Magic Skyway was a massive hit, but the General Motors actually had a massive hit in their pavilion as well. And so following up on that, basically General Motors knew that Disney was continuing to expand. They were going to add a new theme park to the Walt Disney World Resort. And so in the 1970s, they basically tapped Disney first and said, don't you dare go to Ford. We have our hands on this. We want to be your partner for when you do some sort of transportation pavilion type thing. We want to be the sponsors. And it was Ward Kimball, right, was who was attributed that he kind of made the first connection with the CEO or some executive in GM. And that kind of got this ball rolling of how they were going to get this pavilion off the ground. Yeah. And GM actually ended up being the first sponsorship for Epcot. So obviously Epcot went on to get sponsors for all of their attractions, but GM basically approached them from the very beginning to be part of it. And they helped them create the idea for this world of motion, as well as another idea that we'll talk about in a hot minute. So basically GM had a first contract that lasted 10 years. So from 1982, when Epcot opened to 1992, However, in 1992, when their contract would have been renewed, GM fell into some financial hardships and decided that they were just going to sign one-year contracts for a period of time. And it was around that same time, around 1992, where they started to have conversations with each other about World of Motion needing an update or needing a complete overhaul. So this is a really interesting time and a lot of different pieces at work here. GM is running out of money. They're not doing well financially. They're putting up a lot of money to Disney to sponsor this attraction. And they basically say, we're we're able to do a one-year deal. That's all we're able to do. From Disney's standpoint, they don't want to lose their sponsor. Based on other attractions that we've talked about in Epcot, losing a sponsor is the worst possible thing that can happen to them and for their attractions. Because at this point in the Walt Disney Company's life, they cannot fund these things on themselves. So they almost made a compromise, and they both agreed that they would take it into a different direction under a common goal of trying to sell more cars for GM. They didn't think that World of Motion was doing a well enough job of getting people into GM cars. And so that's kind of the birth of where Test Track came to be. But there's a very funny story about the final ride of World of Motion. Well, basically, it was the last day. They knew that this was the last run that World of Motion would ever do. So, of course, all these GM executives came out, decided to ride the attraction one last time. And on that last ride, it actually broke down. And the GM executives had to climb out of the vehicles and walk back out the exit. They lived our dream of being evac'd off a ride. 
they did. And then it shut down. That was the last time. And that was it. But I do think what's very interesting about World of Motion, and we've talked about this for other rides and attractions too throughout Disney World, Disney is, I don't even know what the word is. The masters of repurposing. That's it. They are masters at repurposing. And some of my favorite repurposements came from this ride. So first off, they sent some of their audio animatronics to Disneyland to be parts of Pirates of the Caribbean. Which probably made Mark Davis happy since he probably worked on both of them. Oh, I'm sure. And then some of the props and different pieces from the actual transportation parts were then put in Hollywood Studios in the Backlot Tour showroom space. Which, that's funny. I, you know, when you first think about it, you think, oh, that's great. Like, that's just full of props. But that's not even the purpose of Backlot Tour. Like, we just learned about a couple of episodes ago. Backlot Tour was at the movie. So why did they have World of Motion props? I guess just to take up space. I, yeah, I mean, I think most people probably had no clue. So it's just, hey, look at this cool thing. I wonder where it's from. You'll never know. It just worked. Um, the other attributes to this attraction can also be found throughout other Disney parks. And these are probably the most interesting ones. So the first tribute to World of Motion can actually be found at Test Track. And there they have several. But the first one is a sign that's outside of Test Track that reads FN2BFRE, which is the abbreviation of Fun to Be Free, which was the ride's original song, which you should go listen to. It's pretty good. And then... Well, it was written by Exotensio, so yeah. So of course it's good. Point taken. However, this Easter egg is by far the coolest, I think, that we've ever found. So there is an Easter egg in Skipper Canteen, which is the new restaurant that's themed to fit Jungle Cruise in Magic Kingdom. I still think it's pretty new, so I call it new. And inside, there's a map that's on the wall. It's featuring the legendary beasts of the Mediterranean, and it's detailed by sea member Captain Mary Oceaneer. And one of the creatures is the sea serpent from World of Motion that you mentioned, Brendan. And his name is Kimbalum Horribilis. And that's a tribute to the Imagineer, Word Kimball. So once we get into the restaurant storytelling of Skipper Canteen, I'm sure we'll come back to this idea. And again, we're down the road, we're going to have to do an entire series on the Society of Explorers and Adventurers. But it is pretty cool that there's that connection Mary Oceaneer, if you're not familiar, she has connections to where? Now I can't remember. She's not Typhoon Lagoon. She she? might be. I don't know. We need to study up on our sea. We do. Mary Oceaneer is a confirmed member of sea as well. So I don't know. They're, They're just so good at tying in those things, you know, kind of seamlessly that you never would have seen the connection between before. No, I mean, and it's absolutely brilliant. So those were the biggest Easter eggs. I'm sure there are more out there. So next time you ride Test Track, I definitely think, you know, typically you look for Hidden Mickeys, but next time you might want to look for World of Motion Easter eggs. So bringing it back to Test Track, let's talk about the story of it. We're going to talk about just some general things to keep in mind, then we'll go through each version. And then at the end, we'll kind of have a... I don't know, maybe a debate or just a discussion. A friendly discussion. A friendly discussion on the two different versions 
that had been there. But when it was decided that World of Motion was ready to be replaced, a team of Imagineers circled back to an original concept for what they were going to do with the Transportation Pavilion way back when they were in early development of Epcot. And it was based on this idea of a testing site that General Motors used called the Proving Ground. And they really liked this idea that all of these vehicles that were on the roads today had to go through these rigorous tests and um, you know practices to make sure that the vehicles were roadworthy. And they particularly get, became fascinated with this sled thing called Hygie, is I guess it's Hyge, Hygie. It's hydraulically controlled gas energized sleds that GM would use for the crash test. Basically, it's what you see in all those videos where they're smashing a car into a brick wall. Instead of pressing the actual gas accelerator, it's being pulled from underneath and accelerated towards the wall in that fashion to give it its crash test rating and everything along with that. But that was scrapped back when they did World of Motion and they had budgetary constraints and they couldn't do an entire transportation pavilion like they had originally planned. So instead, they went with the Omnimover World of Motion, and they left this behind. It's interesting that they were able to circle back to this idea. So it's not even a concept that was completely foreign to them. You know, Test Track was something that had always been in the back of their mind since the beginning of Epcot, which I love. I think that makes the story better. It does make it better. And so they brought this idea out from the archives And they presented it to GM, and GM loved it. They really fell in love with the idea of basically building a mini version of their proving ground here in Epcot. So thus begins the, basically the retransformation of the space. So they kept the circle structure, the wheel structure that they had originally built for World of Motion, but basically everything else was completely scrapped. They emptied out the contents inside to start working on the new track. And the cars in particular were something that gave the Imagineers a run for their money. They did not anticipate all the issues that they were going to run into. Basically, they were highly sophisticated. Each individual car contains multiple computer systems. And as they started testing the cars they realized that they couldn't withstand the high demand that they were going to be facing. Um, They ran into things with the tires, like the tires had to be replaced every week. Well, that's not going to work. Can you imagine how much time that would take and how expensive that would be? So they had to work through those issues. They had to work through the actual computer system issues because they needed, you know, 20 something cars on the track to be able to 29 was the number that they decided on to be able to fit all the people. And when they were first running their tests, it would like kill over at six cars. So that's a big difference. So when we think about why they had that big two year delay, that was it. It wasn't, you know, the building or the steel or any of those other excuses that they could have given. It was truly that technology-wise, they kind of bit off more than they could chew. And they actually went about it a different way than you maybe would have imagined. They actually outsourced the computer and the software system to build this. And when they got it back, that's when they learned that it was capped at six. 
they decided that 29 was the optimal number of cars that they needed to have running, you know, loading, unloading on the track at a single time to meet the demand for the guests to make sure that the wait times were still not crazy. Now, this ride still has crazy wait times because it has such a low ride capacity. But 29 was the best that they could get it to. And when they got this piece of software and this control system back from the outsource company, they basically said, it's trash. We have to build this up from the ground up. And they basically brute forced it along the way. They built it up to six. Then they built it to seven. Then they built it to eight. And they basically put on a new car each and every time that they wanted to add a new one on there. And they finally got it up to 29 which is really crazy that that's how they had to go about it. I mean, it is quite incredible. And I guess, you know, it just kind of goes back to if you want something done right, I guess you have to do it yourself because it just did not work for them. But they also talked about the actual design of the cars and how like the mechanics of this operation works. And it's a slot car design. And I thought it was interesting. It mentioned some of the closest relatives to these test track cars do you want to guess what some of them are because i never would have put it together i mean your mind automatically goes to like tomorrowland speedway or altopia but i know that's probably not correct that is not correct (laughs) it is actually the monorail for one of them so the way that it is basically pulled is similar to the workings of the monorail but then also the technical elements of it is related to the indiana jones cars out in Disneyland. And so, if so facto, dinosaur as well. Probably, if you had to predict. Well, and that goes back to the software as well. In both of those attractions, I guess all three, if you're including dinosaur, they have the starting, the stopping, the turning. You know, a lot of decision-making is going into those ride vehicle systems along the way. So that makes sense when you put it that way. What was it? There's something that they claimed like there was more computing power on these cars than a space shuttle is like the thing that I kept reading about. Yes. I mean, so this just goes to show there were so many moving parts that I think they expected the turnaround time to be super quick because they had the plans. They knew what they wanted to do. They only gave themselves like 14 months initially to do this. It was supposed to be a quick turnaround. And I just don't think they ever anticipated some of these problems. And ultimately that leads us to some other really cool facts about this ride. Um, Basically this is still considered the fastest ride in Walt Disney world. It goes just under 65 miles per hour. And immediately you start to think of other roller coasters and in particular rock and roller coaster But according to things that we were still reading online, Test Track still beats it out, which is pretty incredible. And this is also believed to have the biggest price tag. And I think that two-year, almost two-year delay has a huge part in that. So it's rumored to be close to $300 million in cost. Although, of course, Disney never actually reveals how much it costs. You can probably gather more information from the GM documents than Disney because they do such a good job of hiding it. Probably. In their books. But but even though it had a huge price tag and it had a big delay, it ended up being wildly successful. 
because really this was the first thrill ride in Epcot. I mean, this opened the door for all sorts of thrill rides, not just in Epcot, but in Disney as a whole. So what you're telling me is that it's Test Track's fault that we got Mission Space. Test Track's fault? Yeah. No. It is... I don't even... I don't know. You could fault. Yeah. I. Nobody wants Mission Space, but it's there because probably Test Track did so well at the beginning. Well... I, I can't put anything on Test Track. I love Test Track. All right. Let's talk about the first version. Then we'll focus more on the second version and the story that's being told to you there. First version, if you never got to experience it, we are going to kind of walk through it piece by piece just so you can kind of understand and to facilitate our discussion at the end here. So the first version of the attraction brought us into a working GM production and test facility warehouse. The queue was packed with basically two different areas that they had set up for you. They had quality tests. That's the things where you'd see how they install the cars and how they put airbags in place and do the suspension test. Then they had safety tests based on crash ratings and airbags and how they're deployed. They also had like a big mallet that would smash into a test dummy. It was really strange. But, but it was kind of cool. It was very cool, but it was a sensory overload. I do remember being in there as a child and very loud Lots of moving things. And I think it was just a little too much. They went a little overboard. However, I'm sure a lot of people found it very cool and and very immersive along the way. So after you wind through the queue, you were staged in what they called the briefing room where Bill McKim and Sherry, unfortunately Sherry doesn't have a last name. (laughs) We're on a first name basis with Sherry. Would greet and prompt you with what they needed you to do as your job today in replacement of the test dummies. So we're going to play Bill McKim and Sherry's ride preview right now. Hi everybody, welcome to the test track. My name is Bill McKim, I'm up here in the control center. In just a couple of minutes you're going to be out there on that track. But first, let's uh, put together your test schedule. These are the same kinds of tests that are run at uh, GM test facilities all over the world. Let's put up the uh, 26-8 grade. You got it. Okay, we're going to start you off on an accelerated hill climb. Now, these steep grades give us a chance to evaluate the effects of heat and stress on your engine and on the transmission. Twist it, your blocks. Let's put up the blocks, uh, German and Belgian. Next, your vehicle is going to go over a variety of rough road surfaces. These are designed to test the integrity of the uh, suspension and the chassis. You get a bit bumpy. Yeah. <laughs> Next, you're going to see and feel what it's like when your brakes lock up and you lose control of the steering wheel. Hang in there because we're going to one more time, this time with the ABS or the anti-lock brakes. Okay. Right. What's next? Let's do some environmental tests. Uh, put up two, five, and seven. Seven? Yeah, seven. Okay. After that, we're going to subject your vehicle to some extremes in temperature, as well as corrosive conditions, to see how it handles nature's worst. And finally, we'll take you out for some handling rounds. Let's do the corner. Uh, I'm going to send you through some hairpin turns, and then uh, we'll take you out and do the high speed loops. And depending on how your vehicle and Track is all about. Wasn't that awesome? I mean, it was. 
it still is. And it gives me all the nostalgia and everything that you love about like 90s, early 2000s Disney. Everything had a pre-show. I mean, you think about things like Dinosaur, Tower of Terror. I mean, just like everything. Everything has a pre-show. I think it's hilarious how the horrible their audio mixing was. Now, that was like someone recording the recording. But like, why were the cars so loud that you couldn't even hear Mr. McKim for a lot of the time? Because cars are loud, Brendan. Well, they still could have toned it down just a little bit so we could hear everything he was saying. But I do want to take a moment to talk about Bill McKim because this will mean a lot to you, I think. He's one of those actors that you've seen him in like a thousand different things, but you would never put a name to a face. He's played by a pretty young John Michael Higgins. And he was in Pitch Perfect. He was in Yes Man. He's done a lot of voice acting as well. But most importantly, Catherine, he was Mr. Tipton in The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody. Now, Mr. Tipton was not a regular character, if you remember the show. It was basically when things went horribly wrong, he would come in to check in on Mr. Mosby. But that was played by the same guy as Bill McKim. And for those of you who have no clue what we're talking about, this was a Disney Channel show that, I mean, we were probably both obsessed with. Who didn't love The Sweet Life of Zack and Dylan Cody? and Cole Sprouse, Ashley Tisdale, Brenda Song, everyone that you love. Star-studded cast. Exactly. It was a hit. So after the pre-show, you basically went through and did everything that Mr. McKim said that you would. You went through an accelerated hill climb. Suspension test over different types of road surfaces, including bricks and rocks and dirt and all kinds of stuff. You did an anti-lock braking system test, which you went through twice, actually. Once you went through with the ABS off, and once you went with the ABS on. So if you remember, this is your first test is when you would hit the cones and the barriers along the way. And they basically were demonstrating how important ABS was to road handling. Do you remember that part? Of course I do. Next were environmental tests with a heat chamber and a cold chamber and a corrosion chamber. The cold chamber was always my favorite. I mean, it's everyone's favorite. And to be honest, the other day we got on this ride and I was like, oh, they're going to have that room where it's cold. Like, it'll be so nice. Like, I still, when I think about Test Track, a big part of me still pictures this. Even though it's been gone since, what, 2012? I still ride this ride and think that I'm going to go through the cold room. Next were handling tests where you climbed a set of hills with blind turns. And with each subsequent hill, you would increase your speed by 10% each time. And then the very last one was where the big Mack truck almost hit you. The ultimate thrill. It, you never see it coming. You, you never see it coming, <laughs> no matter how many times you ride. It also now... That's why I love that scene and uh, Radiator Springs Racer so much. because it Where has, Mac is there. Yeah. It's a nice nod. Next is the barrier test or the crash test. And this is where you accelerate towards the concrete wall. And seconds before you hit it, it shoots open with some blinding lights at the very last second, opening up where they're taking you on the speed test where you go around the bank track before a straightaway takes you to a max speed. 64.9 miles per hour. And that's pretty much the end. At the end, they had like some thermal imaging that would show you in the car. And, and then you would exit 
And in the exit queue, you would go to the assembly experience, which was a simulated GM assembly plant. So this was pretty cool. They had like a stamper. They had doors and seats and engines on these chains that were gliding overhead above you. Basically that you were in the other half of the warehouse. Now that the safety test is done, this is where they can start putting the cars together. And then of course, they have some lovely GM vehicles there that you can view and learn more about. But I mean, funny enough, this did really help them out. It did. Now we've often joked who the heck has ever bought a car here. I mean, I don't know if anyone actually buys a car there, but maybe it piques your interest. It does. I mean, it's interesting. You know, is that a checkbox on how did you hear about us to buy oh this car? Gosh. Test Test track track. in Epcot. That would actually be amazing. So that was the first version. And its demise is kind of eerily similar to the demise of World of Motion. When the 2008 financial crisis hit, GM was able to hang on for a little while. But then by 2009, GM had filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So at that time, they were then bailed out by the U.S. government in a relief package GM got somewhat back on their feet as the economy started to recoup, but they were still really strapped for cash. And at this time, they told Disney again, we're only going to do one-year contracts, and we want another update to this ride. This is where people get lost. This is where people get upset, and you know, ultimately, you know, I'll just say from my point of view, This decision to take away this version of Test Track was made by someone in a suit living in Detroit and not by a Walt Disney Imagineer. And so they made this second version. They took it down for refurb. It was only an eight-month turnover. Well, because realistically, we're going to talk about the second version here in a second. They didn't change much. They basically reskinned it, I think is the best way to say it. They changed enough to take away everything that we loved about the original, (laughs) but they didn't change it enough to where like there were going to be crazy technological issues and things like they had the first time, you know, the cars are the same, the track for the most, I mean, the track is the same. They just took away all of the elements from a test center, basically. So why don't you walk us through the second version and then we'll discuss it at the end. So the second version, again, it mirrors the original. It just has a few key changes. And basically in Test Track 2.0, which is what we're going to call it, guests are immersed in really the design process. So it's more so about the creation of the car rather than the testing of the cars. And while I agree with you in saying that this, a lot of this change had to deal with GM and their financial situation again, it can be argued, and I do agree, that this has a more futuristic approach, and it does kind of fit in better to future world because it is focused on the design and putting you in that position. And I mean, I don't know. Does that make sense? It does make sense. I mean, it definitely has a more futuristic feel. And for that, point alone i think it does maybe fit in future world a little bit better however i do think that there were maybe some changes that could have been made to version one that still connected it to the future so if you date 
all this back to World of Motion. The last scene in World of Motion was this future city and what they thought. That's when you were talking about the Pepper's Ghost. They were taking a stab at what they thought the future of transportation would look like. I understand they went the safety route with the Test Track version one, but I still think you could have done that. Look, as cars get more safer, look what we might be able to do. We could make them fly. We could have autopilot. There's all these things that we can do that are going to go hand in hand between safety and futuristic design. That's my argument. That's a fair argument. Ultimately, the biggest change that I see between the two, especially in the queue, is that now guests get to go through the Chevrolet Design Studio where you create your own prototype. And they call this prototype your SIM car. And I guess it's important to note, GM did decide to drop GM from the title sponsor. It is now one of their brands, Chevrolet. Good point. Good point. So then this test car, the SIM car that each guest gets to design is what is tested during the demonstration on the now SIM track. And on the SIM track, you go through four tests and they test the different performance attributes of the car that you created. So you have capability, efficiency, responsiveness, and power. The one that I think needs the most help, efficiency. Basically, in the efficiency space, that's where the hot and the cold chambers were. They basically, it's just a bunch of mirrors and they have like a light that just goes over you. And it's supposed to be like airflow. It's super lame. It is. Bring back the cold chambers. That's what everybody needs. Give the people what they want. But again, it's very similar to the original where you can tell it's the same track. Um, if you were to go back and watch like an old POV of 1.0 and then go ride 2.0, you can see, you know, exactly where you went through those same tests. The truck is still there. Um, it's just not a realistic looking truck. It's a more futuristic looking truck. They even mentioned in some of the research that we did that they kind of gave it Tron vibes with like the colors and the way that they modeled it to make it look more futuristic. And Ultimately, each car is tested and scored in real time after you go through each of these tests and it gives them a score. So there is an element of competition here, which I know does play into the rewritability factor is each time you do ride, you get to make your own car and then you scan it in using your magic band or like a little card that they give you. And then that's how as you're riding, they know that you're writing, basically. Here's my problem. There's no story. Version 1 had a story. And although it was silly, and it was, you know, you can use all kinds of different adjectives to label the first story. We, I guess we didn't explicitly point it out. We cut off the pre-show before it explicitly said it. The story behind the first one is that the test dummies have went on strike. And so they need you to come in and perform the duties of a test dummy. Which is hilarious. This one, the story is that you were a designer and you were helping them push the limits as to what cars will be in the future. Is that how you would describe it? 
I mean, that's a way to interpret. I mean, that's a great interpretation. I honestly think that's probably even overthought from what it is. I mean, I think it's just meant to be like an interactive experience where you are designing your car and you're testing it on the sim track. And then you can continue to test it after you leave the sim track in the Chevrolet showroom. So I think when we look back, we're going to look at this era of Disney parks and, you know, the 2000s to the 2020s, 2030s, maybe as well. We're, this era could be called the immersion era. But mixed in that immersion era. So when I say immersion, I'm talking Galaxy's Edge, Pandora, Toy Story Land. You know, you are completely immersed in the story that's being told to you. I think the misstep here is that they misinterpreted interaction with immersion because they're not the same thing. This is very interactive, right? You're competing against other people that are with you. You can go in and you can build a different car every single time, but that's not immersive. You leave and there's no lasting effects, I don't think, is kind of my my issue with it. And I I can see that as well. I mean, there's no story. There's nothing for you to really put yourself into. It's very straightforward now. And all of the things that, you know, we were kind of drawn to in the original or even in World of Motion, I mean, that has been completely stripped away with a bunch of neon lights. It's an advertisement. I think version one was an advertisement secondary. It was a story primary. I think here they've made the advertisement primary. And I think Disney was willing to do that because they didn't want to lose their sponsor, which is sad. Now, again, this is where you can always go back to what you said about Epcot and, you know, some of those original ideas for what Epcot is, and especially for Future World. And this is where the argument can be made that this is more futuristic. But again, futuristic you know, just because it has neon lights, does that automatically make it more futuristic? Like, does is do you have to sacrifice story, I guess, is the biggest question. And I don't think you should have to. I think you can have a futuristic story about test track dummies going on strike. And I think you could have made it work. I think we would both agree the, the primary... Uh, the best way they could have done this was to keep World of Motion and add Test Track. Because then you're showing the history of transportation, where it's going in the future, and then also showing the safety aspect of it. And how cars today and in the future are going to be tested before they can hit the road. And it's just a shame that they both couldn't coexist. And we really couldn't get the quote-unquote, transportation pavilion, which was originally intended for Epcot. So it sounds like we don't even really need to have any sort of discussion here. Yeah, so when you call me a Test Track hater, I think I need you to be more specific. I'm a Test Track 2.0 hater. I do think, now, I know maybe people who went on World of Motion would disagree. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily going to say it's an upgrade, 
but an introduction of a thrill ride that still demonstrated an important aspect of transportation, like Test Track version 1.0, I think satisfied you know, the vision and, and the theme that they were going for. And it truly did fill a gap that Epcot had. You know, they needed something thrilling. If you look at, you know, all of these original pavilions, no matter which one it is that you choose to look at, they were all very similar. Like you even pointed out the similarities between um, the world of motion and Spaceship Earth. It's an omnimover walking through history with animatronics a narrator, and it ends with something that leaves you in the future. I mean, how many of those attractions can someone sit through in one day? No matter how great and historical, well, and you know, you Mark Hor- Davis-esque. Add horizons to that list too. It's the same thing. Exactly. You can only do so much of that in one day, which is why maybe if they had done the transportation pavilion, like you said, in the original manner with both parts, both could have survived, but they had to make that sacrifice early on and, you know, the rest is history. Well, it's kind of funny to think of using about the early days of Epcot as to, and it wasn't even an opening day attraction, but if you go later into the 80s and to the 90s, the most thrilling ride in Epcot would have been Maelstrom. So obviously... Which was pretty thrilling. As, well, thrilling in a different way. <laughs> but as theme park guests continue to push the envelope and you see and you see you know universal heading that direction and then by the late 80s you see hollywood studios kind of heading that direction as well i guess that would be in the 90s more since it opened in 89 but the theme park industry was going that direction and epcot had to keep up in some way so that's why i think you know yes of course it would have been wonderful to keep horizons to keep world of motion to keep body wars to keep all of these classic Epcot attractions, but they had to do something to keep up. And to be matter of fact on it, they still have to do more to keep up. It's still behind based on what it's supposed to be satisfying. Now, we have grown to love Epcot, probably more from a food and beverage aspect. But you can't... But isn't that sad to love a theme park for being able to go there and eat. There's more to it, I think, than maybe we can consciously uh, say. I think we like the music. I think we like being in the different cultures. Now, when they, the lack, this is a completely different topic, but the lack of international college program cast members, I think really hurts World Showcase at the moment. But there is more to Epcot. But to the average theme park goer, Epcot doesn't cut it for a lot of people. When you have a Soren, when you have a test track, I guess, depending on what you like, they have a mission space. It, it satisfies more people and what they're looking for. It kind of helps meet that expectation. It gets people through the gates. And then hopefully once they get through the gates, then they fall in love with the Epcot that we know. You know, with the with the different cultures and the food and beverage options, and then hopefully what future world slash intervention slash that entire area hopefully becomes in the future, they still are able to get into the door based on attractions. I think that's what sells tickets. A Moana water experience 
doesn't sell tickets. Now I think it's going to be amazing, but I don't. I even... I think I think it will sell tickets. Well, you tell a little girl that Moana and Frozen are in Epcot, and that parent is automatically buying a ticket. So we're pretty far off track. We are. We are. But I, I think we both agree. Version 1.0 was just a better experience. Flat out, apples to apples, it's a better experience. The story was better. There is a case to be made that version 2.0 fits Future World better. But I still don't think it's enough. And I can agree with that. So we are in agreement here. So what if we look forward and we put on our thinking caps, what can be done? Is it Tesla? Is it... What is it? So you're you're saying now what could be done for Test Track 3.0? I think 2.0 I, is not sustainable, is it? It's been open for what, 8 years now? Somewhere around there. I I honestly just have a hard time believing that they're going to put any more money into it right now. Just because I feel like they're satisfied with it. It's a thrill ride. I I don't know if they're so much concerned with the story like we are. What will be interesting to see is when new future world is unveiled, Mm -hmm. whenever that is, does it still fit the theme and the narrative of it? Or will it already be outdated whenever they open it? And that's where I think that maybe they would change it. But I feel like because we don't know exactly what new future world will entail new future world is going to be like new fantasy land like it's a an era that's true it will be it's going to be exciting i am genuinely excited for all the new things coming to epcot i just need a larger starbucks again not one that's in a shipping container amen to that but i don't know it's hard it's hard to say what test track 3.0 could be because i don't think they're going to take it a step back, which is what ultimately we would want. I just don't see them inserting a story because I I don't know if that's the direction that they would take it for future world. Now let let me be clear about one thing because I you know this rumor has circulated for years since Cars Land got added. People say, well, why can't they just put Cars intellectual property in there? I'll go on the record and say I support intellectual property in almost every scenario except for this one. I you don't, don't think it would work? No. I don't want cars. I don't want Kachow, Lightning McQueen, or anything like that. I just don't think it's possible. I think it would be such a watered-down version of what Disneyland has that it would be sad. Because I don't think they have room to make them race, um, which is a huge part, I feel like. You're not going to get the same experience of being in Radiator Springs. Um, Maybe the only thing that I could foresee them potentially doing with cars is, what is it, in Cars 3, where they have like the indoor test facility, like where they're basically on car treadmills. I mean, if they tried to spin that as like, this is the future of car testing, racing, whatever. But doesn't Lightning McQueen Racing Academy like do that? I mean, it does, but are they going to keep that forever? I don't know. So that's a pretty cool animatronic. It is neat. I don't know how they'd scrap it. I mean, I guess they, they would repurpose it. it. They would <laughs> pick him up and carry him over. Oh, the last thing that I did want to mention, though, which 
we thought was super cool. So this is completely off topic, but in World of Motion, one of the coolest parts of World of Motion, and maybe this could be included in like a 3.0, is like the 360 tunnel of motion where they would make you feel like you were like bobsledding or, you know, going quickly. And that same kind of technology now we see in Universal. So it was kind of ahead of its time and it is fairly futuristic. So maybe when we would that be cool? You did talk about that last week in our roller coaster episode. I did. I mean, I think it's cool if it's done correctly. I think that now we've never been on Fast and the Furious Supercharged, which is one of those that uses it mainly because we've heard all the reviews of it being a terrible ride. ride. But we have been on uh, Kong Skull Island, and it's a pretty cool effect. You know, you really do feel like you're moving based on what you're seeing on the screens. So, I mean, I could I could be down for some sort of like simulation like that. That would be, okay, even if they just took some sort of technology like that and replaced it with that terrible eco-efficiency room, that would be better to me. Just pause in there for like 15 seconds and say like, here's a road simulation test. I mean, something. Give us something other than air passing over us. Um, I did want to mention one other thing as well. Then I promise we're wrapping this up. We're already over an hour. Oh, good. Um. It was a big talking point whenever Test Track, whenever they switched over from World of Motion to Test Track and they extended the track out back behind there where you're doing the loop, basically doing the bank turns to get ready to do the straightaway coming back of that. This was one of the first and maybe one of the only times where they willingly are showing you a backstage area in the parks. And... There was a lot of discussion around this between the Imagineers and between Disney management about the integrity of, can we show this? This is a cast member parking lot. This is storage back here. Now, now we do run Disney races back there. So is there as much integrity? Who knows? But that that's an interesting talking point, I think, of that they were really worried about taking you back there and and showing you this area. I think ultimately they decided most people are so focused on the track ahead of them that they're not going to notice the costuming building or the cast member parking that's down there below you. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would say that that probably would have won out the argument, but it is something interesting to think about since for so long, Disney was worried about, you know, sight lines and all of those other integrity of onstage versus backstage. Yes. Which, that's another episode. Another episode for another day. So thank you guys so much for listening. We want to hear from you. Send us a message. Tag us in your story. Whatever it might be, let us know. Did you like World of Motion, Test Track 1, Test Track 2, all of the above, none of the above? Would love to hear your thoughts on these. I'm excited to be back in the storytelling series. We took a few weeks off from it, but excited to be back in here. I think we're going to do a restaurant storytelling on Thursday. I'd say that's a fair a fair assumption. So hopefully you can join us for that episode. Hope you're off to a wonderful start to your week, and we will talk to you real soon. Thank you for listening to Detour to Neverland. Make sure you subscribe and leave us an iTunes review if you enjoyed the show. 
Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram at Detour to Neverland or visit DetourToNeverland.com. We appreciate you letting us be part of your day. See you real soon.